Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast. A podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things. All while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Cheese My Podcast. Today, I have author Guadalupe Garcia McCall with me. How are you, Guadalupe? I'm great. Do you go by your full name or do you go by Lupe? How do you like to be addressed? Well, Lupe was that young man that grew up to be this big muscular guy down the street with lots and lots of muscles. So I am I am Lupita or Guadalupe, but I prefer okay. Guadalupe. <laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, I know Lupes, I know Lupitas, I know Guadalupes. So I always ask whatever people's preference are, that's what I will go with. So you were born and raised in Eagle Pass, Texas. Guadalupe Garcia Macal. I look, I want to put the whole Macal <laughs> is an, the award-winning author of several young adult novels, some short stories for adults and many children's poems. Guadalupe has received the prestigious Pura Belpre Award, a Westchester Young Adult Fiction Award, and the Tomas Rivera Mexican American Children's Book Award, and was a finalist for the William C. Morris Award and the Andre Norton Award for Young Adult Science Fiction and Fantasy, among other accolades. She was born in Mexico and moved to Texas as a young girl, keeping close ties with family on both sides of the border. She's a full-time author, an abuelita, and lives with her husband in South Texas. Girl, first of all, I wouldn't have guessed you were an abuelita. So just saying. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) I started young. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I am great. I've been looking forward to this all day. Oh, good. You know what? This is a really good way to end my day because I'm at my nine to five during the day. And it has been like for our entire staff, it has been a week. We have been so busy. It has been so crazy. It's just, so this is a nice way to end my week as well. (laughs) Well, I was at it writing all morning and then I I just kept thinking, I'm just going to have a good time this afternoon. It'll be time to shut down the computer. Yes. Well, before we get into the chisme, we always start with the wine and I'm actually having an Aldina Vineyards there. Now I normally have, I try not, I normally have Latino wine brands when I'm, ha- when I'm on here, but I like to mix it up too, right? And Aldina Vineyards, they actually have sponsored previous podcast episodes and mm-hmm. they are a wine brand out, you know, they're a California wine brand. Excuse me. I'm like having issues talking and it's a Pinot Noir. So it's, I really do enjoy their Pinot Noirs. I always encourage people to try something different, try something new because you never know like what you'll like if you don't try anything new. I know that you are not drinking today, but you were sharing something about a new wine that you liked, a new particular wine that you liked. Would you like to share that? Sure. I don't drink any uh, much anymore. And so I tend to go with the lighter wines when I do. And I like the Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio. And the other day I was at our local HEB and I saw a very fun bottle. And, you know, I'm always a sucker for colorful, fun bottles. And this was like a very baby bluish bottle and it was handsome and it had a silver 
thing on it. And I, I said, ooh, that's pretty for the next time something magnificent happens in my life, which something did. So I opened it and it was delightful. It was light. It was refreshing. And I didn't feel like real heavy like I do sometimes. With wine. Yeah. And so it is called Hema di Luna and it's from Italy and it's just wonderful. So if you get a chance, grab it. It's not very expensive. I think I paid like $15 for it. Yeah. And I was just really surprised that it was so good. We were saying right before I hit record, you know, it's always so important. Actually, I even said it just a few moments ago. So important to just try something out of your comfort zone because you never know like what you're going to discover when you find something, right? Like how light and bright something might be. And I constantly talk about the things that I like and I don't like in a wine because everybody's different. Everybody, I make sure to let people know. I I get people all the time, like embarrassed of the wine that they're drinking. And I'm like, (laughs) don't be embarrassed because first of all, I'm still new to this wine thing, right? But ultimately we all have different palates. Like I'm not somebody who likes chocolate. Mm -hmm. People always think that I'm really weird, but that's just my preference. My palate like is just not a big chocolate lover. So I'm not going to like, you don't mess, you don't make fun of me for not liking chocolate and I won't make fun of your wine choices. How about that? (laughs) And and the fact that I picked it over the color, you know, (laughs) wasn't even, I wasn't even impressed by anything else that it said on the label. I just liked the bottle and I thought, well, if nothing else, I can put some flowers in it later, but it was just so good. And I really enjoyed it. And it was just bright and it made and that day. makes it better. It makes yeah. it better that you did enjoy it. So I'm happy you did enjoy it. <laughs> That's always important. But even if you didn't, at least you know, at least you would know that you didn't enjoy it and you won't get that one again. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm glad you had something that you felt that was that was worthy enough for you to open it. I'm glad. For that. <laughs> Thank you. So you are the immigrant story. You were born in Mexico. Would can you share with me like what part of Mexico did you grow up in and like what that was like and until you moved to the United States? Sure. So I'm from the Norte, right? I am from Piedras Negras, Coahuila. Um, my father was from the ranchos beyond Piedras Negras, like in Guerrero and San Vicente and all those ranchos. And my mother was from Rosita and she would walk into Piedras Negras. She would walk in because she was a maid and he would drive in with his leña because he was a a leñero, um, a woodcutter. And so he would come to sell his wood and she would come to clean houses. And they that's where they met and they fell in love. And of course, my father was an immigrant. He had been working in the States uh, off and on since he was 15 years old. But he was not an immigrant like I'm an immigrant. He was not a resident. He would just walk across, work, and then go back. And so my mother and father were already aware that that's what they wanted in their lives. And so when I was born, and then the next one was born, and the next one was born, there were three or four of us. By the time we moved, I was six. But what was lovely about those first six years of my life was that we lived in a quad in one corner was my abuelita and my tío Juanito. And another corner was my mom's comadre and best friend. And the other corner was my tía and her kids. And we were always running around the mulberry tree where the women gathered to wash their clothes. And I was, and, uh, and I was always eating moras, right? The mulberries. And then in the afternoons, when she came looking for us, we'd be hiding in the field of sunflowers. And then once the dusk came, I would be hiding there and looking at all the fireflies that would nestle in my hair and just creep all over us. And it was just a magical time. It was very different from coming to the United States and sitting all day in a school, expected to, you know, be doing work on paper and pencil. It was very different for me, but I was ready because my father had been getting me ready for a year, teaching me the numbers and the letters and even words in English. I remember he said, thank you. And so you're welcome and things like that. So there was a lot of little moments in my life where I was expecting the change. So it wasn't so difficult. But yeah, I was a wild child in Mexico. So let me tell you, while you're sharing this, 
mm-hmm. you can tell you are a writer. <laughs> the iteration that you were speaking with, I could visualize as you were saying all of these things, I was imagining it in my head. Oh. And I was just thinking, yeah, she's a writer. <laughs> And you know what? And I will say before we get into all of the other topics, one of the things that I absolutely love about books, especially when I was younger, and I don't read as avidly now as I did when I was younger, I was a voracious reader when I was younger, is that I could create my own world in a book. I like the you would explain a color and every person would, it would be different for them, right? Right. I just, I guess I just felt like I needed to say that because I was just visualizing everything that you were saying as you Aww. were describing it. Isn't there a book about under the mulberry tree? It's under the mesquite. Under the mesquite, it's mine. Yeah. Okay. Well, oh my gosh. But I thought there was, for some reason, maybe okay, there that, is. I, I want to say there was something else too about a mulberry tree. I don't know. I'm going to have to look it up. Yeah. But yes, that's just, that's so crazy. Um, so you were six when you moved and you guys moved to Eagle Pass, correct? Because that's just a, that's a border town. That's yeah. It's in the it, valley, it's right? Sister. Um, it's not so far in the valley. It's more like right in the middle between El Paso and the and Brownsville, which is on the other end. Yeah. yeah. So my dad's right from Brownsville. Middle. Yeah. And I had a former boyfriend who actually was born in Eagle Pass as well. <laughs> so we don't consider ourselves part of the, of the valley because we don't do all that agricultural work that you see in the Nalgo County and all those counties down there. We don't have that that kind of weather, but we are a very, very tight-knit community. We're very uh, friendly with the other side, of course, because there are sister city, Piedras Negras. And so, yeah, that's where, we, that's where I'm from. I grew up there the whole time, all the way until college, uh, before I left to college. Nice. You know, I've crossed through Nuevo Laredo and Laredo and it's so funny because people are, you know, the Texas side is Laredo. The Mexican side is Nuevo Laredo. And, yeah. we were like, and we were like, yeah, they call it Nuevo Laredo because it's better on this side of the border than it is Laredo. <laughs> That's funny. And passing through, I wouldn't argue with that, honestly. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a really great area, that whole a border a border town, because you just drive a few more hours and you find another town. And then you have a few more hours and you find another town. And then in the valley, it's almost all clustered together. And so they are very, very close-knit there. Yeah. I mean, even here, I'm I'm in San Diego and I'm only a 15-minute drive from the border. And um, yeah, here, because you have, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that are very clustered because Tijuana would be, I would consider Tijuana a pretty big city. Mm-hmm. Um and then you, you know, then you drive and you have the coastal cities. So you have Rosarito and Ensenada. And then you have, you go a little bit farther down and you have Valle de Guadalupe. And so I would say, yeah, I understand that too. I have not like had to cross to, to work, mm-hmm. but there is obviously a lot of people who do that on a daily basis. Right. I am in awe and in admiration of those people because of anybody who has to cross the border because it is not easy. And they're thankfully going to be opening up another border crossing in Otay, in Otay Mesa. But until then it can take hours. Like people are lining yeah. up to get across the border at, you know, four or five in the morning right. because it can take that long to cross over to go to work. And then they have to go back at night and they're doing it all over. So yeah. anybody who who work who lives that life, I am in awe and in admiration of. Yeah, those were, you know, my my father, my grandfather, my great grandfather, they were all border crossers. They would come to the United States and work and go back and take that, you know, their earnings back there to support their family. So I know that life. I, I remember my father talking about it a lot. So you were saying that your dad was preparing you for for the move to the US and by teaching your letters and numbers. Being like being prepared with that versus actually starting in a new not only a new city but a new country can be very jarring for a young person especially you know it when your life changes so much. 
How was that for you? Do you remember like how you felt? Was it, did you feel scared or any type of trepidation when you moved and started this new life? I actually did. I missed everyone so much, especially my, you know, I told you I lived with family, right? And so I also had chickens. So I missed my grelita, my uncle, my, my tia, my friends, my cousins, but I missed my chickens. <laughs> and so I remember arguing with my mother and telling her I didn't want to go to school anymore and literally refusing to get out of bed. And I, this must have been like already second grade. And I refused. I would just lay there, thought fiesta like this, refusing to get up. And uh, so she made a deal with me. She said, if you go, oh, because I was in first, but my sister was in kinder. So you can imagine me being the oldest, what I was teaching that sister. So like we were running the deer every day, running home because home was five houses away from the school. So we would take off and then we would refuse to go to school the next day. And so she made a deal with us and she said, if you go to school every day, Monday through Friday, and you bring back and you stay there and you bring back good grades, all the S's. She wanted all the S's. Remember, satisfactory. Yeah. Because <laughs> you didn't e get for excellent. Grade. Yeah, yeah. Uh, S for so satisfactory, you just, for unsatisfactory. <laughs> she just said, I just want S's. If you bring me all the little S's, I will take you to Mexico every weekend. And my dad worked out of town. He worked in Fort Worth, which is like six, seven hours away. Oh, my gosh. Time. Yeah. At that time, that, you know, 55 miles an hour. Oh, it's like six hours. And so my daddy would go off on Sunday nights and then he would come back on Friday nights. And so every Friday night he would show up and he'd always have some kind of cute thing for us. Like I remember the day he brought me a chicharra, a chicharra in a little cigarette box. And it was like the greatest thing in the world because he knew I loved animals and creatures. But anyway, so every Saturday, my dad and my mom would pack up all the kids in the back of the truck back in the day where you could put all the kids in the back of the truck. And then we'd go to the rancho or we'd go to my grandma's house and spend the whole weekend in Mexico. And that's how my mother and father solved the problem that we had with, you know, because it was traumatic. And it was, it felt like a little bit of a prison. I mean, I wouldn't have said that at that time, but we were sitting in a school instead of being out with our girasoles, you know, or running yeah. around the mulberry tree. And so, yeah, that's how, that's what they did. And we loved it. We went to the Rancho and Swam in the Rio Grande and barbecued and caught fish and just had a good time every weekend for the, for like, I want to say like 10 years. Nice. I want to kind of touch on what something you said. You were saying it was traumatic and, and you've almost felt like prison. Did you always feel that way? Or was there a point in your life where you that you can recall that you that it no longer felt like that? Like you felt like, OK, I'm OK. This is life. Or did you always feel like you were just kind of trapped? I felt that way. I think I felt that way at the very beginning. But once the promise of going to Mexico all the time that became one of like one of the things that made me really push myself to do well in school. I wanted to prove without a shadow of a doubt that I was capable of taking care of that business. That's all that's the way I've always been. And so school became like a refuge, a place to go where I was accepted. My teachers were wonderful. My teachers were amazing. I was in the bilingual program. And so they made me feel like I knew a lot. I had a lot to offer. I was a good writer. My third grade teacher told me I was going to be a professional writer someday. And so that's, that did it for me. I Those teachers really, because they understood what was going on, mm -hmm. they really helped change the, the way the tide was going for me. I love hearing that because I feel like there's been so many cuts to education and there's so much focus on on a test versus really teaching children how to live as people, right? And be right. and be part of this world. Mm -hmm. Anytime I hear that, I, I love it, even though it's just not, I feel like it's just not the same. I feel like in order to be a good writer, you have to be a good reader. <laughs> that's, that's true that is very true <laughs> <laughs> so I was telling you I was like I would gobble up every freaking book not literally people figuratively <laughs> 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 I 
that would come to me. Like my parents would make Easter baskets and my sisters would have toys and candy and mine would have books. Yeah. That's how, yeah. Like that's totally how I was. When did you discover your love of books? And was that something that your family encouraged? Well, I'll tell you how I discovered my love of words because words really are the thing that has been a very powerful symbol in my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was still in Mexico and my father was teaching me the things that I would learn that I needed. He said, you know, when we go to the United States, you need to learn this so you can be successful. And I was like, all right. (laughs) And uh, he took every letter and he created a creature with it. And he told a story that went with that creature. But it was a very quick little like description. Like he, he, I'll never forget it. He took my hand and he made the S like that. And then he said, the S is a serpiente sitting up on its tail. Watch out. She's just trying to smell things. Don't get near her. And then he put the little forked tongue and the little rattler on the back. And I was in little eyes. And I was like, oh my God, this is magic. (laughs) And I, and I just fell in love with it because when we made our cochinilla with the letter C, I knew what our cochinilla was, right? The little roly polies. And I was like, so in love with it that I thought, this is it. This is magic. And this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I just want to make, make magic with my pencil. <laughs> and so it, so going to the United States and getting to use my pencil and doing the letters that they had shown me was a lot of fun. And my teachers thought it was cute that I had all these little creatures that I made with them. But I, so I fell in love with, with letters and then I fell in love with words and then to get, like I said, I was in the bilingual program. So some of my earlier books were uh, La Cigüeña y la Zorra, like Aesop's Fables. And so I learned so much about how to treat others how to be a good human being, la gallinita, remember la gallinita with a corn and all that, la la gallinita (laughs) roja. And so I just learned how to treat people, how to be kind, how to be generous, how to be forgiving, because those are some of the things that you learn with Aesop's Fable. So I loved those books, especially because they were in Spanish. Of course, later I found out that, you know, they were translated into Spanish and they were very old. But yeah, that's how I fell in love with books and with writing. Wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more Wine and Cheese Me. Hey, mi gente. Gold Peak Real Brew Tea is here to unleash your sense of try. All right. Can I be honest here? I'm not one who really drinks sodas. So if I'm not drinking water or wine, then you can usually find an iced tea in my hand. And since we're talking about unleashing my thirst to try something new, the next thing on my list is to go on a hot air balloon. The romance of seeing the world from that perspective makes my heart go pitter-patter. And since my other half is afraid of heights, it's something that I will probably have to try by myself or with a group of friends. So mi gente, tell me, what is on your try list? To learn a new language, to travel someplace you've seen in a magazine, your favorite show, Maybe it's just trying to make some time to pamper yourself. Ignite new passions and rekindle new ones. So try Gold Peak then. Try something else. Because this taste is worth the try. Try Gold Peak. It sounds like your dad was a very influential part of your love for words and your love for learning. When you look back at that time, what are the things that, what is the thing that is most impact and i'm sure that there are many things that impacted you that your dad would share it sounds like you were very you were very close growing up and he really am what would you say like could you pinpoint anything that you were just like this is the moment this is the time this is like or you kind of go back to something that he always said you know my my parents were old school right like from mexico so i remember the day that he took me to the store And it was, I think it was the market, like the meat market or something like that. Cause I just see that in my, in my brain, but he, he was standing there and he had introduced, somebody had come over, one of his friends and they said, it's it's tu niña, it's tu niña. And he introduced me and he said, this is Guadalupe. Si, es la mayor. She is the, the eldest. 
And so the man reached out with his hand and I didn't know whether to take it or not. And so I took it very like gently. And my father said, no, mija, fuerte, like I taught you. Let people know you mean business. And I was like, oh, and it stayed with me that I had to be strong, that I had to present myself in a way that said, I'm not a weakling. I can do this job. I can do this thing. You look at me. And so I just grew up wanting to be like my dad, wanting to be very successful because he was very successful in the United States. He had his own uh, construction company. And so I just wanted to be like him. And to this day, I every time I, I find things about myself, I'm like, oh, that's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> I know you have those moments, right? Where you're like, oh, wait, I've just turned into my mom or oh, wait, I've just turned into my dad. Yeah. Maybe it's not such a bad thing because I feel like so many of us grow up not wanting to be our parents. Right. <laughs> but so many of us that our parents have had such a big influence. Now, there's some things that I think, you know, maybe don't serve us and we could learn from there, from those traumas or mistakes to be able to, to be better, yeah. right. To be able to, but I think that there's a lot of things that, you know, obviously we get from our parents that are just kind of in, become ingrained in us. And then you do something and you're like, Oh crap. Like for me. Okay. And this is a really, like a very silly example. I remember growing up and my mom, like we would be at the groceries. I'm a grocery store example también. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and my mom would hear a song that came on and she would start dancing in the aisle. She would just like start, come on, Mia, let's go. You know, and I'm, oh my gosh, mom, stop. That's so embarrassing. <laughs> and I am that person now. I am that woman. I hear a song come on and I'm like, oh yeah, I start bopping my head. If my <laughs> nephews, especially because I don't have kids, if my nephews are with me, I especialmente, I'm like dancing. I'm like, come on. My mom would grab my hand and like spin mm -hmm. me around. And I like purposely do that to my nephews because I want to embarrass them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think with my dad, he did that because I was so shy. And I'm normally soft-spoken. And so I'm shy. I'm soft-spoken. I don't talk to people unless, you know, I feel very comfortable. And so he saw that and he thought, no, I've got to get her out of that because she needs to, to be stronger, right? And so I, I just thank him. He And my sister says the same thing. Nos hizo muy fuerte. My dad nos hizo muy fuerte. And thank the Lord for that because yeah. we've, all, we've all come a long way because of him. You... We're saying you found a love for letters and then words. What is your first memory of writing a short story or something creative? I remember my first short story. Oh, you start. Tell me. <laughs> I was in third grade. Oh my God. And I was, I wrote this, like, I don't know what I wrote. This thing is called the bomb. Mm. Right. Mm. And it was about. I think it was a hotel, like there was a bomb that was going to go off at the bottom of a hotel and they needed to find it. Now, in my head, it was probably like it was like this big elaborate thing, but I actually think it was like two pages. Like it wasn't very, you know, it wasn't very <laughs> yeah. long at all. Like you read it out loud and it's like two minutes, you know, <laughs> but that was my first the first memory that I have of writing something creative that wasn't nerdy like taking notes because I was that nerdy kid that would take notes and my teachers would be like what are you doing and then they would see I would actually be writing notes and they're like from like the book and they'd be like hey <laughs> weird kid but that's awesome um so that was my first experience and that was my first memory of of something creative that I wrote yeah so mine was also in third grade which is really interesting I wonder what's happening in the third grade rooms. I know those <laughs> neurons kind of, popping. I know those, <laughs> those curriculum guides are really, really getting done well. So I was in third grade. It was my first male teacher. My first and second grade teacher had been females. And here's this man. And to me, he looks so tall and so foreboding because he did not smile. Not even once the first few weeks. And then he assigns a short story. He wants a creative short story. I am sitting there thinking, I've got this. This is how I'm going to prove myself because this man seems to be so quiet and so 
so you know, severe. And so I thought, I'm going to impress them with my writing skills. So I went home and I wrote this story over the weekend and then I didn't finish it. It wasn't done. I felt like it wasn't done. My daddy came, we took us to Mexico, forgot all about it. I worked on it Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And all those days, it was late because it was due Monday. And my miss, and miss, his name was Mr. Hernandez. And Mr. Hernandez kept walking around saying things like, well, some people have not turned in their homework. And then he'd look right at me and I'd be like, oh, try to hide. <laughs> so, but I really wasn't finished. And, I, and I'm a perfectionist and I was a perfectionist even then. And so finally, finally, I turn it in on Friday and I wait till he's actually out of earshot in, with his back to me talking to another student and then I rushed to his desk and I pushed it under something else but I didn't get to push it all the way because he's turning around so I ran <laughs> when, <laughs> I ran back to my desk <laughs> but he of course he saw me right I mean he's the adult in the room so apparently he saw me he walks over to his desk he sits down he takes it out and it is 10 pages 10 pages front and back of course my letters were huge so that's why it took 10 pages but <laughs> But uh, he takes it out and he's kind of like shocked, right? And he starts reading and reading and reading. And all of a sudden he stops, like he's done. And he gives me that very severe look. And then he points at me and does the little crook thing of the hand, finger so that calls me over. And I am quaking in my boots, like literally quaking in my boots. And I walk up to him and he says, Miss Garcia did you write this? And I said, yes. And he says, hmm, all by yourself? And I said, yes. And now I'm offended because, you know, who did he think <laughs> wrote this? And then he says, I don't speak Spanish. And you have a few words, because this was monolingual, by the way. By third grade, I was in a monolingual class. He said, but you have a few words and I wanted to ask you about. He said, what's this word? And I said, that's Loma. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, that's a hill. And he says, oh, okay. And then he goes through some more and then he comes to Cerro. And he says, and what's that word? And I said, well, that's just a bigger hill. <laughs> and he said, so Loma and Cerro are the same thing? And I said, well, yeah, technically. And then he says, so why not just say Loma again? And I said, because my daddy says you should not bore your reader. And <laughs> he said, you don't, I said, you don't repeat things. You don't bore your reader. And he starts laughing like I have never seen him laugh before. It's like the work week three or four in, in the school year. And he's laughing. And then he goes, Miss Garcia, I think you're going to be a writer. And that was it, Jessica. I was like, toda chiflada, lifting my collar, <laughs> going, I'm going to be a writer. Because <laughs> Mr. Hernandez said so. And that's that's my memory of not just being creative, but being recognized for being creative, right? And it was another teacher that did that. You know what? Recognition is, especially when you're a child, is vital. Yeah. N having, like, knowing that somebody sees you and sees your potential. Mm -hmm. I think that's vital at any age, but particularly when you're growing up, because how many children do we see lose their will or lose their love for, for learning, whether it's learning anything, right? right. It may not necessarily be in the classroom, but learn, losing their mm -hmm. lust for whatever they want, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Because they're not, not only are they not being encouraged, but then they're being told, oh, that's never going to happen. Or even, oh, you're from this neighborhood or you're this or you're that. So that's not for you. That's not going to happen. That's going to be too hard. Right. Right. And the encouragement is so, so, so necessary in order. Yeah. Like, so I am, it makes me so happy to hear that you got that encouragement and validation. It's validation because you love writing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, I'm a badass. Even at third grade, you're like, yeah, I'm a badass. I got this. This is what I'm going to do. <laughs> and you know, I got that validation from my dad all the time. My dad was a man of letters. He loved. And what I mean by that is that he loved reading the Bible and, and really anything he could get his hands on. And then uh, he would draw beautiful, beautiful images on this journal that he had, like a drawing pad that he had. 
And he would do that in, in at night after we were all settled in. And so he would talk to you. And when he would talk to you, he would speak in metaphors. And you were like, oh, like you could tell he had gone to school and that he gave a lot of philosophical thinking to everything in his life and everything that might be happening. And also because he read the Bible and was really into that. So I just fell in love with the, the his way of being in the world. And I wanted to be like him too. And I think that's really important that parents validate their, their children and also model for them. So, you know, there are homes where we don't have a lot of books. Go to the library, take your child to the library, read a book with your child at the library. They're free, right? <laughs> well, even if you don't like for, like, for example, my mom was not really a reader. She would, she used to tell me, she didn't know where I got this love of reading because <laughs> she wasn't really a reader. She would read to me, but yeah. And I remember being in middle school where she signed me up to be a volunteer at the library <laughs> in the children's area and stuff. She's like, Oh, I signed you up. And I'm like, and it was during the summer. And I'm like, really? You're like putting me to work in this, the library this summer. <laughs> But she knew I loved to read and she knew I would like, which I did. I loved it. Like, even yeah. though it took time away, right? Mm -hmm. I freaking like loved it. Kids yeah. don't know about the Dewey Decimal System anymore, but that's how I had. And I helped put books away and that's how I had to put books away. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, my mother wasn't a reader either. And um, she was she was a maid uh, and she had left school when she was 10 years old. So at the age of 10, she had to literally leave school so she could help support her family. She came from a, of a family of all women who were all maids. And so that must have been hard on her. And um, I can remember that she wanted me to help out around the house. And I was a little lazy. That was okay, but fine. I was a lot lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to do the. I didn't want to do housework, and so I would say, "I'm reading this book, or I'm writing this thing, or I'm." And she would, she would. Uh, my father would come in, and he would say, "Una salupita, donde anda mija? Mi gordita, donde está?" And he, and he would, and she would say, "You know where she is? She's got that face in the book again." <laughs> because it it was frustrating for her that I didn't want to help around the house. So I get it, but she didn't understand my love of books and how yeah. much I could just get lost in them, like you said, you know? Well, you know, speaking of, I think one thing that I really want to emphasize is it it is so easy, uh, especially when, you know, Mexican men are very old school to have that machismo mentality. It doesn't sound like your dad had that machismo mentality because maybe yeah, I see the little maybe a little bit but just yeah. the fact that he encouraged you was he that way with like are I know you're the oldest brothers and sisters or just one or the other we have was, two boys and six girls in my family oh my girl yeah <laughs> no wonder your mom wanted you to help <laughs> Well, I mean, being the oldest that often happens I'm the oldest of three and I would often have to help right yeah, like right. you have to help pick up the slack and you know everything but but it sounded like maybe because you were the oldest like you kind of took that older boy role as well where he encouraged the things that he may not have encouraged maybe I'm like I, girl I know nothing about your family obviously yeah, I'm yeah. just picking up on, on I'm things vibe. from the conversation. Yeah, on the vibe, right? <laughs> well, you know, I'm the oldest. And then there's Alicia and then there's Virginia. And Virginia has not, has just uh, stopped being a principal or a vice principal because she needed to concentrate on her two businesses. Not one, two. <laughs> so yeah. that should tell you something about how strong-willed we are. How very, um, I don't want to say ambitious, but just, the need to be successful, to prove ourselves in the world, to prove our worth to not necessarily other people, but to ourselves, right? To be worthy within ourselves. We have a lot of that, a lot of intrinsic motivation. And so I want to say that, yeah, he, he did in a way 
make me um, special. I was his hija mayor after all. (laughs) (laughs) And and my brother was like fourth in, yeah, he was fourth in line. There were three girls and then him and then three more girls and then the boy at the end. And so he put a lot of effort into making all his children feel um, like they were worthy. I'll never forget, like, I think I was maybe in middle school when he said, I don't, uh, he started talking a lot about racism, right, in our country. And he's, he was the one, the kind that would tell you all these stories about what his father went through and what his grandfather went through and what he went through in this country as immigrants. And, and he told me one day, never let anyone tell you, you don't belong. Because, Miha, you belong everywhere in every corner of this yes. world. Anywhere you choose to stand, that's where you belong. And I was like, yeah, preach it, daddy. (laughs) I'm like, ah, this is so, uh, I know it's, it's so necessary. And I'm going to, I probably am using, I know I'm using like, I'm boring people, right? Because I'm using the same words over and over. But sometimes there's just not enough words, right? To be able to, to express certain feelings. Um. I assume that you continue to grow your love for writing and your love for reading, your love for words through high school. And I know that you have a very, like you kind of have a varied, not varied because it seems like your whole career path really resonated about your love for learning, your love for words. You know, you were a teacher, you taught undergraduate courses in literature, women's studies, creative writing. You were constantly doing these things. So what was your kind of trajectory? And when was the first time you're like, it is time I'm writing my first book? Well, I actually wrote it with my students. And so I did not know that I was writing a book. I was teaching them um, this was many years ago, like in the 1990s. And I was te- late 1990s. I was teaching my students how to write poetry. And so one of them, one of my students, uh, they didn't, this particular group, they were not responding very well to this unit. And so one of the boys said, it's hard. And I said, no, it's not. It's really easy. It's so easy. And another one right at the back, he he put kind of covers his mouth and he says, well, it's so easy. Why don't you do it? And I was like, what? Challenge. I said, you don't know who you're talking to. You're talking to the princess of poetry, the queen of prose. I'm going to write you a poem. I'm gonna, it's going to take me 20 minutes, but each, it's going to have six stanzas and every stanza is going to have a simile. Are you ready? And the whole class was like, we're ready. Let's do it, miss. And I got up there and I wrote this poem called Swimming the Rio Grande. And when I was done, they were like, that's it? That's all we have to do? And I said, yeah. They said, oh, so we just write about ourselves and our lives and something that happened to us. And we can even write Spanish words? And I said, yes, yes, you write you, you do you. And they were like, okay. So they got into it. And these boys that had never given me much work were suddenly throwing these beautiful poems at my desk. And I thought, oh, my Lord, what have I started? So the next day, they come back, the same group, Grupito de Basketball Players, and they said, Miss, what are you going to write about today? And I said, me? Why do I have to write? And they said, well, we decided if we have to write a book of poetry, you have to write a book of poetry, and you're going to do it with us. And I said, challenge accepted. And so we got into it every morning because they were first period. I would write a poem. They would write a poem. Well, the unit was 30 days. It was so successful that I thought I'm going to do this unit every year at the very beginning of the year, get them hooked on poetry, get them hooked on writing, and then, you know, throw the curriculum at them. Yeah. And I did this for 10 years. And then one day they said, you have to move. You're going to move Miss McCall all the way across campus. And I was like, what? So I was packing things and I found that folder with all the poems from all those years of teaching. And I started sorting them because I thought this is too big. I'm just going to throw some of these away. And then I found that the stack of poems about my childhood kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was like, I wrote a book. 
In the last 10 years, I wrote a poetry book. And so that's that's what became Under the Mesquite. That became my novel in verse. But it was wow. a 10 year process that I didn't even know I was doing. It wow. was a crazy, crazy situation. You have several books under your belt, some young adult books, some, like you said, short stories geared towards adults. Um, some like the most recent book is Echoes of Grace. Right. And I want to read what it says on your website in regards to the book. Okay. Says a tragic accident in the young lives of sisters Graciela, Grace, and Mercedes, Mercy Torres, sets off a chain of events in which Grace flounders to restore her relationship with her sister while swimming against a current of strange, bewildering echoes. Flashbacks, premonitions, and visitations from, from the other side all weave a mystery tapestry that weighs heavily on Grace's shoulders as she tries to navigate memories of a time three years earlier when she ran away from home and lost a week of her life. In the present, amidst, amidst the mun, ay, 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 mundan, I, I can't say the Mundacity. word. Yeah. <laughs> See, maybe, I don't know, is it the wine? Maybe I just can't say the word. Who knows? Of college homework and dating, Grace tries to figure out if the things happening in her world are memories or premonitions, warnings of things yet to unfold. As she recovers time lost, Grace comes closer to re reconciling with Mercy, even as she remembers bit by bit the horrible thing that happened to her when she spent a week with her maternal grandmother in Mexico, a grandmother she had been told was long gone. The things her regained memory reveals shed light on old family secrets. Now, when I was... When I had received some other, it was like it it described it kind of as a gothic book, but I it feels like it's just a very I don't know, like just reading it, it sounds almost like a mystery. Yeah. So is are they maybe a little bit of both? Do they go hand in hand? What would you say about this book and what was your inspiration for it? Well, the inspiration was something that happened in my neighborhood years ago in 2012. A young woman was leaving to go to work and she left her two-year-old with her sister. And so her sister was on the porch holding the two-year-old's hand. Somehow he gets loose, runs out, and the mother ran over him and he <laughs> perished. And it was tragic. I mean, tragic. And it I didn't know the girls, but it really hurt. And I couldn't understand. And I was processing and processing and my sons came home and one of them said, mom, because I couldn't stop talking about it. I couldn't stop ranting about it. I kept seeing things like, why, why was that child having to stay home with a sister? Where are the programs to help these young women who are obviously struggling with daycare, with babysitter money? And I just, I, I was really upset. And I kept thinking, this happens to us. You know, because because we're poverty, because we are, um, we're not rich, we're not wealthy, we can't afford the things that other people can afford. So my son said, Mom, I don't understand why this is bothering you so much. Why are you, you know, continue to talk about it? And then I told him, I said, because that could have been me. Because I was the both the girl on the porch and the girl in the car. When I was in college, my sister and I both had very young, young children. And we would literally put them both in one stroller and put a little colcha, a little blanket over them and walk them in the snow all the way to the university. And we would sit in the student center all day, taking turns, taking care of those babies. She would go to class and she would run back. And then I would pick up my books and run to my class back and forth. And we couldn't afford real food. So we fed them French fries. And I just kept thinking, in 21 years, we have not moved an inch to help young women who are single mothers or maybe young mothers with very little money. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't created programs to help them. And it really bothered me. And so that was the inspiration. The other thing that really, really resonated with me was what if something had happened 
during that time to us. Because I remember my sister putting her little skinny arm around me, kissing me real hard. You know how Mexicans kiss me, right? And she would kiss me real hard and she would say, take care of him. Because if something happens to him, I'll gut you like a fish. (laughs) And I was like, what? Don't talk to me like that. And she was like, yeah, you know, that lab rat, uh, frog, that's going to be you if something happens to Miho. And I was like, oh, my Lord. So I told my son that story. And I said, you know, there was fear in her eyes when she left every day that she left him with me. Not because I was a bad sister, but because he is was her treasure. And so how devastated must this sister be? that she has caused this other sister, this great grief, that not necessarily is her fault because children run, right? I mean, I had three boys that were all runners. But <laughs> the fact is, how, how are those two going to get back together? I kept thinking, if it was me, if that had happened to me at that time, how would I ever make it up to her, right? And so that was the inspiration. That was kind of like the little, the little seed that started it all exploring the sister dynamic, exploring trauma, exploring not just trauma of one sister or this generation, but previous generations, how women have had to sustain themselves, heal themselves through trauma after trauma after trauma with no help from outside sources. And so as the story progressed, these ghosts started coming into it. And then they, the place that she goes to in Mexico was like this ruinous, abandoned house. And I just kept thinking, I think I'm writing a gothic novel. And then I started understanding that all these little pieces of like beautiful memories and premonitions, with, you know, that, that she was giving me were parts of a bigger puzzle and that it was my job to figure out what the puzzle meant. And once I started putting the puzzle together, I realized that this was about far more than that accident and far more than marginalized young women, that this was about crimes against women, neglect, abuse, rape, femicide, all the things that have traumatized us for generations and generations as women, not just in this country, but in other countries, because this kind of situation is like a global issue. Um, all all those things are global issues. Yeah. And so it became big. It, it got a lot bigger. And that's why I would say I would describe it as a, a gothic novel with a secret, a mystery that needs to be solved. So I have two questions. Yes. I want to get them out because I don't want to forget. Okay. One, what would you say a goth- for those, like even myself, I guess I don't know exactly what a gothic novel means. Mm-hmm. And two, do you feel like with each book that you write, that you are healing some part of yourself that mm-hmm. maybe you never got the opportunity to do from different traumas or different experiences that you had throughout your life? Yeah, let me answer the first one. So a gothic novel is a very dark genre. It has usually ghosts and specters, and there's always an abandoned house, and there's always a woman in peril. And if you see the, the, the covers, she's like running away from a house or hiding in the woods with somebody behind her chasing her. And so it's that whole concept of women running away from danger, women in danger. And so when you think of Rebecca, Jane Eyre, these are really strong women because they are facing dangerous situations they have to be strong and so they may appear like the normal sweet girl but really they have an inner strength and um i would say that that's my sisters and i we we are we appear bien lindas bien you know genuine and all that because we are but there's this courage and a strength built into us that comes from the hardness of having had parents that worked really hard as immigrants. I mean, my mom, I I remember all the stories of being a maid that she had to go through, all the things. And when I was watching The Help, I was like shaking my head, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Everything was jiving with everything she told me. And so 
With every novel, yes, I feel like I've healed something in myself. Like with with Under the Mesquite, it's about my mother losing her when I was 17 to cancer. And so I healed that 17-year-old that was still mourning for her, that was still wanting uh, resolution for having lost a mother. And then with some of the mariposas, I was healing some of the trauma of bad relationships with men, uh, you know, with with abandonment, with, and, and it's, that's not just even my story. That's the story of people and women I know um, that have gone through traumatic experiences of, of being abandoned with children. And, you know, the guy left and he went off to, to marry somebody and raise somebody else's kids, that kind of situation where there's a lot of hurt, but there's also a lot of courage and a lot of strength that can come with that. And so that I was healing some of that and, and trying to heal that in some of, of the young people that I see who are suffering because they're going through that kind of traumatic experience at home. And yeah, but this one really, really healed the young mother who was having to, to go through college and, and find a way of, you know, that's what my sisters and I used to say, we're changing our stars. We were impoverished. We were huérfanas uh, de madre. We did not have a mother. And yet here we are, young mothers without a mother of, of our own to kind of guide us. So we have to be each other's support system. And there was a lot of trauma in our in our history with our mother gone and, and just, you know, trying to change our stars in a in a system where you feel sometimes like you're trapped because there's nobody helping you. And so, yeah. I would say I'm trying to. Even through Zoom and even though we're just in video, I can see the hurt in your eyes as you're speaking and as you're thinking of your mom. I can see the loss and the like wanting of 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 the time that you didn't get right. from her. Yeah. Um, so thank you for sharing that because I know that those things are not always easy to share. Yeah. And to be able to put those energies and put those things that to create something on the other side, to create something that's beautiful and, you know, that people get to kind of create their own story. Like I was saying at the very beginning of our, of our interview is as you were telling me about your first six years of life in Mexico, I'm, I can see this little girl and I can see the fireflies and, you know, I could see her dancing with fireflies and, and those in her hair and running around. And so thank you. I'm sure there's so many people that have gotten so much from your books that you probably have never heard from, but have you, have you gotten like, what type of feedback have you gotten from your readers? And do they tend to be the young adult readers that you target or, and do you get some adults who've read your books and, and then I would imagine when you're younger, you're going to get something different versus when you're older, you know, you're going to read something different. What type of feedback have you gotten from your books and what do you feel the, has been the most impactful based on your feedback? Well, you know, I can tell you that Under the Mesquite always hits home with people because I don't shy away from showing the grief because I take the reader from the very beginning, from being five years old, coming to America and thinking your worst problem is learning the English. And then you get you get to be 14 and you realize that your mother, you know, has this secret that she's dying. And so I take them all the way till after that to where she recovers and she has hope for the future. And she has learned how to carry the, the memory of her mother with her. Even though she's going to college and she's arrived at the university, she's got her suitcase and she knows that her mother is with her. And so that's really, um, I wanted to leave the read. That's what I do. I take readers in a really dark corner. I take them all the way down there and then I bring them to hope because everything, everything has hope in it. Uh, my mother used to say, todo tiene remedio, mija, no te preocupes. And so if everything has hope, everything, there's a remedy for everything. Um, I try to do that with my book. So Under the Mesquite, I'll tell you one woman who wrote to me. I, it was completely out of unexpected. I got a lot of letters from like teachers and students, people who read the book and study it. But here's this one woman and it was an email and she was from Australia. And she said, I'm 52 years old. I live in Australia 
you're probably wondering how did Under the Mesquite made it get all the way to Australia. But there was an Ameri- a lovely American woman apparently gave it to her. And the reason she gave it to her is because she had just lost her daughter, her 17-year-old or 18-year-old daughter. And so she said, I have been devastated. And I didn't know how I was going to get through this. But reading your book has made me see that there is hope and that someday I'm going to be able to pick something that belongs to her and carry it in my pocket and it will be okay. And I was like, oh, you're killing me right now because that's what I wanted. I wanted people to have hope from that book. I wanted people to to look at it, not because it's it's beautiful poetry or whatever it is that they want to tell me. I want to hear that it has helped them heal the way I was healed when I wrote it. That's beautiful. That really, really is. Thank you. Um, what is what is on the horizon? What is next for well, you in regards to what you're... Are you already working on another other book or what do you yeah. got going on, girl? Okay, so I've got five novels burning on the stove, right? And not burning, uh, burning on the stove. Dang. <laughs> yeah, so David Bowles is one of my best, best friends and he... Uh, is very an expert on Nahuatl, right? On the indigenous uh, language of the Aztec uh, empire. And he, and I wanted to write a novel that had a young man in the past 500 years ago during the fall of Tenochtitlan who meets a girl who is an immigrant in present time through an artifact of some kind and they can help each other survive. And so I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to write this book. So I asked him if he would write it with me and he was so excited. I mean, we were having dinner when I presented the idea to him and like his mind just started going. And before you know it, by the end of the dinner, we were like, we have a plot. And so we wrote that. And while we were writing that, we had an idea for a second book and and not related to the first one. And he's uh, because he's, I told him, you know, you could literally take every tiny little myth in the, in the Mesoamerican mythology, every little one of them, there's billions of them. And you could write a book with each one of them. They are so important. And he said, well, if you could do the next one, what would it be? And I said, Popo and Itza, the two volcanoes in Mexico, the sleeping woman with a warrior holding her. And, and he said, oh, my God, yes. Yeah. So we sat here in my living, in my kitchen and just started messing around. And before you know it, we have a second plot. And so we sold those two. Uh, the first one, The Secret of the Moon Conscious, coming up next year. And then Hearts of Fire and and Snow is coming in 2024. And so those are the two that are already sold and we're working on. And I'm writing a sequel to one of my novels, but it's a secret. So all I can say, it's a secret. (laughs) Stay tuned. (laughs) So I want to ask, so normally I ask everybody when um, they do the guest form to, if they could describe their life in one word, what would that be? I really want to ask you that question because I know your love for words. What would be the word that you would describe your life? Passion. You gotta have passion. I could totally see that. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the book has been released, correct? Yes. Where can people find the book? They can find it everywhere. They can find it on Amazon. It's at Target. It's at Walmart. It is, of course, at the two books what do you call it, Um, website, the publisher's website. But I would tell people, ask your library to order it or ask your independent bookstore to get it for you and to get a few extra copies for somebody else. Because bookshop.org, right? Bookshop.org has like a list of independent books. So you can actually order from them and it will actually come from an independent bookstore. And it's so imperative that we keep our independent bookstores alive and going. Yeah. yeah. So I always say those two things are really important. Libraries, because they also need to stay open and yes. independent bookstores. And if so, if you know that there's a little bookstore in your neighborhood, go there and say, here's the book and get a couple more copies for my friends. Um, what is the best piece of advice anybody has ever given you? 
about writing or about just anything? I, I mean, it can be anything. It can be about writing or it could be about life. <sighs> and, and this applies to both. But it was a, a, a runner, a marathon running friend of mine. And I was complaining because, you know, he had three boys and I have three boys and he's a single father. But here he is running marathons. And I said, how do you do this? And he said, why are you such a successful teacher and wonderful mother? And I said, because I, I work my behind off. And he said, right. So you can do the same thing with writing. Whatever, and here's the advice, whatever you put your energies into is what will produce for you. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and I started writing full time after that. Like, So there's <clears throat> another adage that is very similar to it, right? Because you know how people always say the grass is always greener on the other side? Yes. The grass is always greener where you water it. Yes. Yes. That's it right there. You know, we can make excuses day and night for not doing things. But if it's whatever it is that you put all your energy into that will bring, you know, that will blossom for you. And and it really has blossomed for me. Uh, and I owe it to to that teacher who was a wonderful man who told me that he knows who he is. <laughs> <laughs> How can people find you website, social media to be able to connect with you? So on my website, I have an actual contact page. If they want to get in touch with me, it it goes to me and it also goes to my booking agent if it's a booking question. Uh, It's at ggmccall.com. That's it. And on Facebook, I'm Guadalupe Garcia McCall. And Twitter is also ggmccall, at ggmccall. And um, I always give people the opportunity to share one last thought. If there's anything that I didn't ask, if there's anything that you want to share, please do so now. You can do anything you have set your mind to. If I can do this, anybody can make their dreams come true. That's it. Yes. Thank you so much, Guadalupe, for sharing your time, sharing your story. I am very appreciative of it. I cannot wait to see all of these things that you're continuing to do because it's really cool. I've loved, I've enjoyed every moment of talking to you. So I just really want to say thank you. And I appreciate your, you sharing your time and your story. Well, thank you so much for having me. It, it is a blessing to be here today. Thank you. <laughs> and until next time, mi gente, saludos. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Chisme on Instagram and at The Wine and Chisme Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos.